Let's turn in our Bibles this morning to 2 Corinthians. We're going to make our way back to chapter 3 as we continue our journey through Paul's letters to the church in Corinth. As you guys head that direction, let me just remind you that the Apostle Paul has written this second letter as a response to his first letter to the Corinthians. And as he wrote the letter of 1 Corinthians, which we spent uh, six months studying through, uh, is Paul wrote this essentially in response to sin issues that had taken place inside the church there in Corinth. That in the Corinthian church, uh, they were basically, in, according to my version, a uh, tore up from the floor up. And so Paul spends 11 chapters in 1 Corinthians addressing uh, sin issues, walking them through uh, correctively how to get past these issues and get back into a right relationship with God. But even as Paul has to write this letter, which is obviously going to be difficult for the Corinthians to read, he's concerned with how did they receive it. And so Paul sends one of his protégés, a young man named Titus, down to Corinth to find out how are they doing with all these corrective issues that I wrote for them. And Paul being so excited, so concerned about their well-being, he actually made his way from uh, Ephesus onto Troas and then eventually meets up together with Titus there in Philippi to find out how are they doing in Corinth. And what Paul finds out is uh, the response was not stellar. That in fact, uh, these Corinthians, not only did they not listen to the letter of First Corinthians and Paul's corrective issues, but they actually came back uh, with a vengeance at the Apostle Paul, questioning his authority, questioning his apostleship. And so often what we find is when uh, we have something hard to speak into someone's life, this is often the response, that they will come back uh, with negativity, with uh, a vengeance. And so what the Corinthians do is they, they attack Paul himself, because if you can't discredit the message, you might as well discredit the messenger. And this is essentially what they're looking to do. If we can discredit Paul, then we can discredit all that he wrote to us. And so what we find in chapter 1 is Paul is uh, establishing his authority that he is preaching from, and in chapter 2, we find as he is, uh, he is establishing the way in which he came uh, to them. And so we're now in this spot where Paul it tells them at the end of our time in chapter 2, he says, For we are not as so many peddling the word of God, but as of sincerity, as from God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. And so what Paul is saying is there are others who've come and they want to charge you. They want to peddle God's word, but they had questioned Paul's integrity. And so he's saying, as we came to you in Corinth, we didn't charge you anything. We didn't ask anything from you. In fact, Paul would be a tent maker just in order to support his ministry so he wouldn't have to ask the church in Corinth for a thing. All Paul communicates here that they desired to do was share the word of God in sincerity, a sincere, without wax. We talked about that in our time in chapter 1. Paul wanted to communicate to them with integrity, with sincerity. He simply wanted to share with them the gospel. That's all he desired to do. And so as we arrive in chapter 3, we're going to see Paul, after he's defended himself and his integrity, he's now going to defend his apostleship, his calling. In chapter 3, verse 1, we read, Do we begin again to commend ourselves, or do we need, as some others, epistles of commendation to you, or letters of commendation from you? You are our epistle, written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. 
And so oftentimes in that day, as these speakers would travel around to different areas in the ancient world, they would bring with them their credentials. So when they showed up at a new church, they'd be able to say, this is essentially my diploma. These are my credentials. This is what gives me authority to be able to speak in this situation. And so here the Corinthians are now challenging the authority of the Apostle Paul. They're saying, we want proof that you have actually been called as an apostle. And what Paul says, if you want proof that uh, what's in the pudding, guess what, pudding? You're the pudding. You're the jello. Everybody loves the jello pudding, right? And so for the Corinthians, they were the pudding. And the proof was in the transformation that had taken place in their lives. What Paul is saying is the fact that you're even here as a church is proof that I was called as a minister because nobody in their right mind would have planted a church in Corinth. I mean, this was one of the most wild places in all the ancient empire. It was the Las Vegas of that day. It was crazy. And so Paul's saying, look, the fact that you're even here has transformed lives is proof of the calling. If you want it, uh, you are our credentials. You're our resume, is what Paul is saying. Now, he wasn't the first person that we see through Scripture uh, where his authority was actually questioned. In fact, if you go back to Numbers chapter 17, as Moses and Aaron have led the nation of Israel out of Egypt and they're now spending their time in the wilderness, that uh, you can imagine this wasn't just a family gathering that we like to think of, uh, but the nation of Israel at the time they were in Egypt had grown to a nation of over 2 million people. And so there were literally millions of people and they all began to question, who are Moses and Aaron? Do they really have authority over us? And so each of these 12 tribes, they sent leaders to Aaron and Moses to challenge them. Who do you think you are to speak into our life, to give this authority spoken into us? And so what God has Moses do is each one of these leaders from the 12 tribes, he has them all cut a staff, and they're to bring their staffs up to the tabernacle of meeting and present them before God. And what we find is as the staffs are presented before God that here in verse 8, now it came to pass on the next day that Moses went into the tabernacle of witness and behold, the rod of Aaron of the house of Levi had sprouted and put forth buds and had produced blossoms and yielded ripe almonds. So think of that. These guys all cut a stick of wood and not only did uh, Aaron's bud, but it actually grew a branch and leaves and sprouted almonds. In 24 hours. This was, uh, needless to say, miraculous. But what uh, the reason I point that out is, you see, the proof of their authority was in the fruit of their ministry. That God actually allowed them to produce fruit. And so when we question, is a minister really a minister of God or not? You need to ask yourself, is there fruit? And what does the fruit look like? And so for these Israelites, in verse 10, And the Lord said to Moses, Bring Aaron's rod back before the testimony, that is the Ark of the Covenant, to be kept as a sign against the rebels, that you may put their complaints away from me, lest they die. And so the proof of their authority was in the fruit that was produced by the Lord miraculously in their lives. Now, this is going to sound similar to what Jesus shares in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, concerning how we are to judge those who proclaim to be sent by God. He says in verse 18, A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. For every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. By the fruit that's produced is how you know if someone is a, a good tree or a bad tree. And so while we are not called to judge, 
what we are called to do as believers is to be fruit inspectors. But the place where fruit inspection is to actually begin is in uh, us, our own lives. And so what I'm called to do is the Lord has transformed me, hopefully from the inside out, is to look, is there proof of the transformation? If I believe, if I question myself, do I, do I really know Jesus? Do I really have a relationship with him? Well, then my question back to you is, uh, what does it look like, the fruit in your life? Do you see any proof of transformation? Is, is there anything there that we can look at? And what Paul says to the Galatians in Galatians 5.22 is that the fruit of the Spirit is love. It, it's singular. It's love. That's the fruit. But when you bite into the fruit, it tastes like joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. These are the flavors of what the fruit is. And so as I'm introspective and I, and I consider my own transformation, often I have to check myself at the door. How am I doing when it comes to the flavors of the fruit? Do I have joy? Do I have self-control, good grief? Do I have uh, peace and patience and kindness? And so these are things that we can look into in our own lives and into the lives of others. Now, as we continue... In verse 4, Paul says, And we have such trust through Christ toward God. Verse 5, Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. Isn't it amazing that as uh, churches get planted and then they grow, and then the next thing you know what happens is uh, pastors are on the parade route. I mean, they're, they're sharing with people, this is how you plan a successful church, five steps to grow your church, we're writing books, and we're on TV, and, and it's amazing how it progresses. But the reality is, um, any sufficiency we have does not come from ourselves. It's all from God. In fact, what Paul said in chapter 2 is, verse 15, is that we are to be the fragrance of Christ. But as we're to be the fragrance of Christ, verse 16 says, to one were the aroma of death, leading to death, to the other, the aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for such things? Who is sufficient to be the fragrance of God, to literally be Jesus with skin on as we go from place to place, interaction to interaction? I don't know about you, but most days I don't feel that sufficient. I I question my own sufficiency. Really, like who is sufficient? Am I sufficient to be in this place? And the reality is, uh, in my own skin, of my own flesh, absolutely not. I am completely and totally insufficient. So praise the Lord that my sufficiency doesn't come from myself, but it comes from Him. In fact, what Paul is going to write in the 12th chapter when we get there in a few months is that um, in our weakness, He is actually made strong. And what the Lord tells Paul is, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. If you want to be strong, it, it, then actually be weak. Actually reduce yourself, humble yourself, and say, Lord, I can't do it on my own. Would you be sufficient through me? And then he gets to show his strength through your weakness. And so because of my insufficiency, he can actually show his great sufficiency in my life. Now verse 6 as we continue, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now this question that they had back in the Corinthian church, and really it's even a question that we arrive to to this day, is what do you do with the law of Moses? 
what do you do with the Old Testament? Are we to follow it? Are we to not? I mean, how am I supposed to organize the Ten Commandments in my life? What should it look like? And so this was a struggle. It was a challenge for them. I mean, remember the melting pot they had. They would have had Orthodox Jews that had been converted. They would have had Hellenistic Jews that lived a little more liberally that were converted. And then they would have had Gentiles. I mean, they were, take a walk on the wild side, Gentiles. Like, they didn't know anything about Scripture. They just came in there, and and all of this blended together to make the, the first church. And so they were all brought together, assembled by God. And there were those that wanted to propose that in order to be a Christian, you needed to believe in Jesus and also follow the law of Moses. When we studied through Galatians, what I shared with you is, here's a little Bible math. Um, Jesus plus anything equals nothing. We cannot add anything to this salvation. We didn't bring anything to the equation. We simply come in our insufficiencies and then he makes us sufficient. So as Paul was writing to the Galatians there in Galatians chapter 3, who were struggling with this, this is what he communicated to them about wanting to be legalistic. He says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Or are you so foolish Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect in the flesh? This is Paul's question. Having begun this thing in the Spirit, as God's given you this grace, were you made perfect in that or through the law? And so what Paul is going to communicate to them in verse 10 is important for us to note. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. And so what we see is, if you desire to live by the law, then you must also die by the law. And the difficulty with the law is, um, I can't actually keep it. I can't even keep the top ten list. Let alone the 613 commandments that are listed throughout the Old Testament. And so what, what choice do I have? I mean, where is my sufficiency going to reside? Now, if you go back to when the law was given in Exodus chapter 32, Moses, keeping in mind, Moses is over 80 years old at this point. He has now made his way up 7,000 feet on Mount Sinai. He's receiving the law from God. And so he's up there in Exodus 32. He's 40 days up there on the mountain. And there's thunderings and lightnings and fire. And people are like, you know what? Mo is probably dead. He is not going to make it out of this deal. And so after 40 days, they're worried. They're like, look, Moses is gone. They go to Aaron, his brother, and they said, listen, we need you to fashion for us an idol. We need something we can worship. And Aaron has them bring all his gold, all their gold to him, and he makes a golden calf for them to worship. And so here's Moses, 7,000 feet up, spending time with Jesus, just reveling in the Lord. And the Lord says, hey, you got a problem. you got to make your way back down the mountain. They've already broken the law. While you're up here receiving the law, before you ever, ever even gave it to them, they broke it. And so Moses makes his way back down the 7,000 feet. And when he arrives, he hears a bunch of noise. It sounds like people yelling, but they were actually dancing and throwing themselves a party. In fact, the word in the Old King James is they were playing. And that word in the Hebrew is actually their word for an orgy. This is what Moses walks into as he was trying to bring the law to the people. You can imagine uh, he was a little bit upset. He throws the tablets down. 
that are broken. He smashes the idols up, makes them into a powder, and makes the people drink them. And then he gets a hold of the Levites and he says, I want you to strap on a sword and run a sword through the men who are responsible for this. And in verse 28 of chapter 32, so the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses and about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. Think about that. The day the law was given, 3,000 men died that very day. You see, the letter kills. But then you fast forward to Jesus. 2,000 years later, here's Jesus speaking to a group of Jewish people. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. He says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law of the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. That the very fulfillment of the law was in the perfect one, Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah. And so he became the fulfillment of the law to do the thing that you and I couldn't do. And as a result of him giving his body up for us to be broken on our behalf, we now receive the Holy Spirit, the comforter that he said was to come. And what's even better is in Acts chapter 1, he says, I'm going to leave you with the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. He's going to come upon you and he's going to make you witnesses to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. And so as Jesus ascends into heaven, the Holy Spirit then comes down in Acts chapter 2 on that day of Pentecost. And as the Spirit comes down, man, the Apostle Peter, he's got a word from the Lord. And he goes out and he he gives the people a message of repentance. He gives them this message to repent and to turn back to God. And he is inspired by the Spirit. And what we read in chapter 2, verse 41, Then those who received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. Did you catch that? That in Exodus, as the law was given, 3,000 people lost their lives. But as the Spirit is given, 3,000 people find eternal life. Because the letter is perfect in what it was sent to do. It was sent to prove that we can't actually keep it. But the problem with legalism for us is, and this is a struggle, especially for our Western church, if you grew up with any kind of church background, legalism always wants to seep in. And the issue is, it becomes, how can I somehow be righteous? Self-righteousness is created through that. If I just do this, God will find favor. If I just do that, God will love me. When the reality is, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He loved you while you were in the midst of your sin. There's, there's nothing you can do to earn it. It's, it's His righteousness placed on us because of, our, because of our belief. And so legalism tends to make me believe that I can earn favor, and yet His Spirit writes the law actually on my heart. It's no longer tablets of stone that we have to rely upon. This is prophesied by Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31. Now as we continue in verse 7, But if the ministry of death, written and engraved on stones, was glorified so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. Or verse 10, even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. For if what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. Now, what in the world are you talking about, Paul? Go back to Exodus and the golden calf meltdown that we just 
talked about from Exodus 32. Moses has made his way back down the mountain 7,000 feet. Now he's made his way back up the mountain 7,000 feet in Exodus 34 to again receive the law from God. And as he's up there receiving the law, the Lord actually blesses him in this way. He allows him to see the glory of God, the backside of the Lord's glory. And in in verse 6 of chapter 34, And the Lord passed before him, speaking of Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and in truth. This is God speaking words about himself and his character to Moses. And Moses gets the opportunity to witness his glory, the Shekinah glory, the shining of the Lord. Moses then receives the law. He makes his way back down the mountain. And in verse 29 of Exodus 34, now it was so that when Moses came down from Mount Sinai and the two tablets of testimony were in Moses' hand, that when he came down from the mountain, that Moses did not know the skin of his face shone while he talked with him. That the face of Moses was actually glowing. Now, needless to say, this freaked people out. I mean, you talk about this little... Jewish guy is now glowing in our midst with the law in his hands. I mean, this is kind of scary for the people. But the shining of the Lord was so beautiful, so glorious, that Moses actually just simply reflected what God had given him. And this is the law being delivered to the people. In Galatians chapter 3, what Paul communicates, and it's important for us to understand that the law wasn't the problem. That he says here in verse 24, Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But the law was given to us as a tutor to point to the fact that we cannot do it, that we need a Savior. Jesus being the fulfillment of the law, the law was given to us that we might be justified by faith in Him who is the completion of the law. And so the law isn't the issue. Um, The issue is me. I cannot keep it. And so the law was so glorious that even as Moses brought it down the mountain, his face shined. But it has no comparison to what Paul is communicating to these Corinthians compared to the grace of Jesus. That the grace of Jesus, it far surpasses the glory that was seen on Moses' face. This same grace that you and I have access to in him. Verse 12, he says, Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. Unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. So at the point where Moses comes down the mountain in Exodus 34, his face is shining. From that day forward, he wore a veil over his face. Now many have proposed that the veil was covering Moses' face so that people wouldn't freak out that he was shining from this glory of the Lord. But what Paul gives us, is some insight, is that the veil was there not so people didn't freak out, but so that they didn't see that the glory was fading. That the glory that he had received from the law, it could only last so long before it began to fade. And so it is true in our lives. We set up laws and rules and regulations that can only get us so far. At some point in time, the glory is going to fade because even the rules I set up for myself, I can't keep. And I certainly can't keep the law of God. And so here he's saying to them, in order to cover it up, in order to make it look like I'm still good, everything's still good, we're okay, I'm okay, you're okay, we're all okay, he covers his face with a veil so nobody could see behind and really see what's going on. 
we set up things and we say, I'm never going to go to that line or go beyond this spot. And yet we do. And so we have to hide and we have to cover. So the people don't see that what they thought was glorious, what they thought was so righteous, they're really unrighteous. And so the reality for each of us is, um, I'm not a sinner because I sin. I sin because I'm a sinner. It's who I am. This is me and my flesh. And so I'm not a sinner because of my sin. I'm actually a sinner. Uh, I actually sin because I'm a sinner. Lots of times in psychology, you'll hear that uh, we, we have a nurture problem. That if you take a person and you put them in the right set of circumstances, if you give them the right inputs, if you give them the right amount of nurture, then their life will turn out far different. But I would propose to you, um, for us, we don't have a, a nurture problem. We have a nature problem. Our, our flaw is in our nature. It's the very DNA. We are sinful by nature. It's, it's beautiful to see the little babies in the nursery. They're so cute. It seems like they're so perfect. I got to tell you, um, they're little sin buckets. I mean, they just can't wait to start sinning. Little sinners is what they are. Now, moms are not usually as excited. I don't communicate that at hospitals very often. Look at that little sin bucket. Look at them. No, not great. But that's the truth for you and I. We, we are sinners by nature. It's who we are. It comes very natural to us. Now, verse 14. But their minds were blinded. For until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. And now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. And so, living under the law, it, it veils us from the truth. The law actually covers the capital T truth, which is the liberty that we can have in Christ. But turning to Him, this is the beautiful part, in turning to Him, Jesus, His promise is to remove the veil. And yet, because He loves us, He gives us a choice. Understand that. The love always demands the choice. And so he gives us a decision. We can choose to turn or not to turn. But if you read verse 16, that when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. When we turn to Him, the veil is lifted, and then we can see Him clearly. We can see Him right there, high and lifted up. And yet, for those who are still under the law, those that are living out the Jewish faith, but then also those that just live in the life of legalism. They cannot see Him clearly. In fact, for the nation of Israel, who've been waiting now for thousands of years for their Messiah, there's going to come a day where He is going to show up on their doorstep, and they're going to see Him. They're going to celebrate. The Mashiach, He's finally here. He's returned our Messiah. And what Zechariah chapter 13, verse 6 says is this, And one will say to Him, What are these wounds? between your arms. This is prophesied 400 years before the crucifixion of Jesus. That when the Messiah shows up, they're going to look to Him and they're going to say, what are these wounds on your arms? Where did those come from? And then He will answer, those which I was wounded in the house of my friends. Can you imagine the heartache to know that the Messiah that they waited on for thousands of years that in the house of his friends is where he received the wounds. And when we turn to him for the first time, I don't know about you, 
But that was the first thing that came to my mind. All those wounds, all the hurt and the things that I, I layered that on him. In the house of his friends, he, he raised me, and yet I, I shouted out, crucify. And so it's a humbling opportunity we have to turn to him to repent, to lay our life down at his feet. And, and this is what the law does. It proves what was in me. So as we try so hard to live out the letter of the law, it proves that I'm a sinner. And it proves that I need a Savior. It proves exactly what is, is within me. And yet liberty doesn't leave me in that spot. So as we're mourning that we have wounded our friend in this way, here's what liberty does. Uh, liberty that we can find in Christ through the Spirit, it takes away the condemnation. He takes away the condemnation. And what Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, verse 1 is this, that there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I'll read it so I don't misquote Scripture. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but walk according to the Spirit. There is no more condemnation in this spot. It's a beautiful promise that He's given. And He's given us the promise that He's going to remove the veil. That the veil will be taken away. What the veil speaks to is our access to Him but it also speaks to the veil that separated us from the very presence of God. In the Holy of Holies, that veil that separated the nation, separated the world, that only the high priest one time a year could go behind. If you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, what we didn't have access before, we now have access by His blood and by a new and living way which He consecrated for us through the veil that is His flesh. Having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And so as His body was broken and the veil was torn physically, in heaven the veil was also torn. And we now have access to the Holy of Holies. Hebrews chapter 4 says, Therefore let us come boldly to the throne of grace. This is a beautiful promise that you and I, because of the tearing of His body, can now have access for all of eternity to crawl right up on our dad's lap and tell him everything that's going on. Lord, this is what's happening today. Lord, this is what I'm struggling with. Lord, can you please speak into this spot in my life? We now have access because the veil has been removed. What a beautiful promise. Back to verse 18 as we wrap up this morning. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. And so as the veil is lifted, and we can look upon His beautiful face. It's by His grace that we are changed. It's not through a program or a procedure, or a practice, but a person. And a person is in a relationship that we can have with the person of Jesus Christ. He, he has given us now this access. He has lifted the veil. And it's through faith in Him that you and I can now be justified. Before, we couldn't be justified. We couldn't be made in a right relationship. But because of this justification, what Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, is this, that 
For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We can now be freely justified, just as if I'd never sinned, just through simply believing in Him and who He sent. Through believing in Jesus, that's that's it. That's all the harder it has to be. And, and one of the best phrases for justification I heard this week was applied righteousness. Oh, how hard we work to have some kind of righteousness. But through justification, he actually takes his righteousness and applies it into our lives. And so if you believe in Jesus, you have been justified. It's a beautiful promise. But we don't stay there. While we have been justified, as we go through this life now, we are being sanctified. That's the other big word. It's justification and then sanctification. This is the act of being set apart. And so the way this looks is that when I believe in Him, I'm justified. I am sanctified. And yet what John says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, he says this, that uh, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And so the idea is that I am cleansed, but then I am also being cleansed. Be ye being cleansed. I am cleansed and positionally set apart in Him, and yet I am being cleansed daily. And that may be confusing. And if you want to know how that works, just follow me around a little bit. I mean, I am cleansed, and yet, man, am I a work in progress. I mean, it is a daily cleansing that I need. Yes, I am cleansed, but He is cleaning me up from the inside out. This is each of us. We are works in progress. And some days, it's hard to see. Some days you wonder if we've made any progress at all. In fact, what Paul wrote to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12 is this, that some days, a lot of days, it looks like for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face, now I know in part, then I shall know him just as I am known. But today, all I can see is in a, de- in a glass dimly. I can't see everything that he's got in store for me. And, and that day, mirrors were often uh, polished brass. And so it wasn't like our really reflective glasses. You could see the outline of your face. You could catch maybe if you had a little hair sticking up, or uh, but you couldn't tell if, say, you got a big old boogie hanging out, right? So you got no idea. Like you're off walking around, you're just hoping somebody tells you. Like, oh man, I didn't have any idea that was there. Because it's a glass half dimly. But someday, the promise is I'm going to be able to see wholly and completely. And that day, that promise is when I see Him face to face. But for right now, I am being sanctified. Years ago, uh, I got the opportunity to go to Israel. And one of the pastors that was with us, he'd been a pastor for years. Uh, His name's Gary Lawton. He's at uh, Calvary Chapel in Santee, California. And Gary is this super... uh, he just is a tremendous pastor. I mean, the way he speaks and communicates, he just, if I can ever grow up to be like Gary Lawton, he's who I'd want to be. And he had this big, deep, booming voice when he'd share, too. So I'd want to talk like Gary Lawton if I could. But I remember being uh, there uh, in uh, Israel, in Jerusalem. We were in the place where they'd actually taken Jesus into the Roman jail, and they tortured him there before they brought him out to be crucified. And as we're standing there, uh, Gary got choked up. And after 40 years in ministry, he looked at us and he said, Guys, I got to tell you, I, I sure thought I'd be a whole lot farther along than this by now. And I'm thinking, This dude is the most holy guy I've met. And he's 
living out his sanctification. He's living from glory to glory. And it was actually encouraging to me that we are all works in progress, that we get this opportunity to come together as a family, as we share, as we grow from faith to faith, but we're not staying in that spot. We've been justified. We are being in the present time sanctified, but all this is leading up to the promise that one day we will be glorified. That's what we're all shooting for, isn't it? To see him face to face. What John says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 is this. He says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. I don't know about you, but I'm so looking forward to that day where I get to see Him as He is and we get to be made all that God had ever intended for us to be, glorified, holy, made complete in Him. And so as we are living out this life, what we have is we're being sanctified as the promise that someday we will be glorified. But as we go, well, we're not someday what we will be. We are not what we once were. And that in-between time, that becomes our testimony, you see. And this is all about his story, him working in our lives individually, him transforming us from glory to glory as we go. And so, Father, we thank you and we praise you for the work that you have done, for the justification we can have by faith. Lord, I thank you for the sanctification that you are currently doing in our lives individually. Father, would you continue to cleanse us from the inside out? And Lord Jesus, I'm looking forward to the day where one day we will all be glorified. I cannot wait to see you face to face. Where the aches and the pains and the hurt and all the things we've experienced, some self-inflicted, some imposed by others, Lord, that all these things, that they just aren't right. And they aren't right because this isn't our home. We don't feel like we belong because we don't. Lord, we are excited for the day that we get to be face-to-face with you. We are going to be undone for sure. And yet we are going to be glorified because of who you are. And so, Father, we look forward to that day excitedly as you take us from glory to glory. Thank you for not ever giving up. Thank you for not ever stopping one of your promises, for seeing this through to the end, even when we think about giving up. Lord, we thank you. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.